0: We capitalize financial value in our economic system by decapitalizing the natural and social capitals that we rely on. So in other words, we're draining value from the system in order to concentrate value in finance. And that's just insane. The sort of disentangled world also is a disentangled sustainability world. We're actually
1: not dealing with sustainability, we're dealing with less degeneration.
2: This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host, Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world.
3: Today on the Boundaries Conversation podcast, we explore an initiative that looks into transformation and the micro-macro dynamics of organizing from a thresholds and allocations perspective. We're joined by Bill Bowie, Senior Director at R3.0, and Ralph Term, Co-Founder and Managing Director at R3.0 a non-profit platform which promotes redesign for resilience and regeneration. Founded in 2012, R3.0 connects a global community of positive mavericks around its work ecosystem that focuses on transcending incrementalism to trigger necessary transformations that enact living system principles. The work of R3.0 explores responses to the ecological and social collapses humanity is experiencing, in order to achieve a thriving, regenerative, and distributive economy and society. Bill Bowie is a true expert when it comes to sustainability thresholds, thrivability, and online stakeholder engagement. He has co-founded several enterprises, including Sustainability Context Group, See Change Radio, and Current. Ralph Term is a leading professional in sustainable innovation and strategy, operational sustainability, sustainability change management, sustainability reporting, and transformation, and thriveability. He is also the founder of Ahead Ahead and managing director at OnCommons, the not-for-profit home of R3.0. We're super excited to share this interview with you as we dig into how R3.0 applies a fractal, multiscalar, and bioregional lens to understanding transitions towards a regenerative and redistributive global economy and society. Tune in as we explore organizational entanglement, creating value at a systems level, and how Bill and Ralph look at global governance. If you like this episode, don't forget to give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening.
2: Hello, everyone. So we are back at the Boundaries Conversations uh, podcast uh, once again. Um, Simone here, uh, together with my usual co-host, Stina Hechila. Hello, everyone. Today with us, uh, we have uh, Ralf uh, uh, Turm and uh, Bill Bowie uh, from uh, R3.0. Oh, uh, so welcome, both uh, you gentlemen. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's great to, to have this conversation. Um, it all started, you know, let's say from uh, from you know our long term interest for the work that you are doing. That uh, as the loyal readers, let's say, can recall, uh, ended up in featuring uh, the work that R3.0 is doing uh, in our recent white paper that we released on November 20th. Also, besides this very interesting work that you have been doing in the latest uh, papers that you have been publishing and your blueprints. Uh, also, a conversation we had on Twitter, you know, a few a few weeks ago, uh, that started from, uh, I would say, uh, a concern or or maybe a um, curiosity uh, that we have about uh, understanding the role of, uh, uh, you know, r- r- advanced reporting and uh, uh, accounting practices, uh, sometimes based on, uh, uh, you know, thresholds and. Uh, 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 you know, evaluating or measuring the impacts that our organizations have on the environment or society more in general, as a means of uh, transition uh, towards a new economic model. And, uh, that, uh, I would say that the new development model that everybody's talking about, well, we don't know really how it works You know, how it will emerge and so on. So, so the questions we started from was really about... Uh, The role of uh, top-down policies versus bottom-up transformations, constraints, uh, the role of risk in restructuring the mission and the execution of uh, our organizing. So before diving into this conversation, I would like to ask you both to give us a bit of an address of uh, what R3.0 is. Uh, is doing. Also, you know, a little bit of a story, because normally we don't do much of in, in introductions you know, in the podcast, but uh, I think it's important for our listeners to know more of what you are doing with this initiative uh, that is so precious and, and uh, also so standing as I understand. So I will leave it to you for uh, this brief, maybe intro, and then diving deep into the question.
1: Yeah, right. And it's Ralph here. I'm just going to pick up on that one. And actually, some of the questions that you've been uh, now just uh, addressing were some of the reasons why we actually started with R3.0. And R3.0 stands for the Redesign for Resilience and Regeneration and um, was really triggered by the Rio Plus 20 conference uh, in 2012 when our government leaders decided that we wanted a regenerative and distributive economy and some of us including myself and uh, and and bill we looked at each other and said okay so what's going to happen now because there was a report that came out that was called the future we want and um, we were looking at each other and we thought well that's not going to get us there it is really the future we design so how are we going to design that future um, from the here to the now, um, and ending up at a regenerative and distributive economy, that was really the trigger uh, in 2012 when we when we started to sort of first do some soul searching and then you know structuring what sort of work are we going to do to get us there because existing uh, standards, existing um, benchmarks, existing business model, canvas models, Um, we looked at all of them and we concluded they're not going to take us there. So how are we going to do this? That's how we started. And uh, in the meanwhile, and now we're eight years later, actually, we have a um, a fully fledged what we call work ecosystem where we are designing blueprints or so-called blueprints where we Um, Look from the ideal of a regenerative and distributive economy. That's something that we did right at the start of um, the work of R3.0. And then backcasting from there, what areas need to simultaneously um, uh, leapfrog in order to get us to that idea or that ideal of a regenerative and distributive economy. And that is um, how it all started. And we've now designed seven of, in total, nine of those blueprints uh, working on Reporting and how it would look if we if it truly served the idea of a regenerative and distributive economy. Um, how would accounting need to change? What sort of uh, data architectures would we need? How would we design new business models based on the other three blueprints? How would we transform an organization? How would sustainable finance uh, uh, need to be established because we don't have it yet? Um, how do we um, design value and system value and um, design a fractal uh, economy. And last but not least, and that's what we're working on right now, is educational transformation and then uh, governance and funding. Those are the two blueprints that we're still working on. And uh, what all of that really leads to is a a full work ecosystem um, that creates that necessary leapfrog. As an organization, we are really seeing ourselves as uh, pre-competitive and market-making. We're not standing in the way of anybody who's out there and who exists. Um, They're all invited to come on board to work with us. Um, So with Blueprints, uh, we also write white papers and uh, opinion papers. We have a yearly conference. Um, but what all of that really um, bonds together is the idea of when do you actually perform sustainably. And that is where some of the vocabulary um, that we're going to talk about, I think, in this, uh, in this podcast um, sort of surfaces, and that is um, namely thresholds and allocations. And I would leave it there and uh, let Bill also say a couple of words, and then, then I think we're, we're having the right intro right into the questions.
0: Great, thanks, Ralph. Uh, And I'll just add a a little bit um, onto what you're saying in the sense that the the thresholds and allocations question is really where I uh, intersected with R3.0. So going back almost to the beginning, uh, of course, we were already in connection um, from the beginning, but uh, Ralph reached out to me to ask me to speak at at several of the early R3.0 conferences, Uh, in my role as co-founder of the Sustainability Context Group, which was a loose global network of experts, practitioners, uh, thought leaders, who all agreed with this idea that um, our economies and our cultures really need to align with the the external, the real world uh, thresholds whether those are are sort of physical thresholds uh, in in the, the the natural living systems, uh, or whether those are social thresholds um, in the social systems or the the newest sphere, as as you call it, at boundaryless. Um, so so that's really our connection point. I think that's where we're gonna um, uh, you know delve into deeper. But I guess the last thing I'd say is that a, a real point of of intersection that I be, see between our work at R3.0 and the, the work of Boundaryless and, and your uh, uh, network of, of audience for this podcast and, and the folks that you work with is this notion of, of uh, taking a networked uh, approach. So, so you know one other element of R3.0 that I think is, is key is that we have a very small core uh, group working uh, for R3.0 itself But we have a very large network of partners um, that that amplify our work and that we also consume knowledge from. And so we create a a sort of a co-creative ecosystem uh, that is is a kind of platform itself. So R3.0 could be considered uh, a platform that is leveraging a a large global network. Uh, So I'll I'll leave it that in terms of uh, uh, intro to R3.0.
2: Right, thank you very much. That was uh, really important, I think. You hand me uh, this first reflection, no? that is uh, a little bit of the starting reflection we, we, we had also on this Twitter exchange you know, that we had a few days ago. Our impression sometimes is that uh, you have these two directions uh, to address these. Uh, Idea of a transition towards uh, something new. Uh, somebody call it the game B. Somebody call it, you know, the new development model, and and, and somebody also see, you know, the, only the perspective of collapsing. You know, when when thinking about the transitional state. So uh, there are definitely these two places where we we are having this conversation, and one is the conversation around policies, you no, know, and the conversation around what authorities uh, to some extent. Uh, collaborative ones or, you know, are essentially entitled to establish some kind of policies in terms of thresholds or, you know, taxing carbon or, uh, you know, making policies that ensure to some extent that uh, the economic players, you know, the, the, the traditional economic players uh, move within uh, the right space, you know, they don't cross space, they don't generate too much uh, or, you know, incontrollable externalities and so on. On the other hand, uh, it looks like uh, also something happening in the other direction, No, the the holes, know the the small pieces that to some extent uh, need to change their posture towards uh, participating in the economy. So, on the other side of the spectrum versus the global policy making, for example, or the national policy making, we definitely have uh, you know organizations that, uh, uh, focus more uh increasingly on their um, uh, bounded contexts like you know the, the new uh, trends we are seeing in localism, for example but in general the question that that we raised in this twitter conversation was really about uh, how do you develop an approach to directing this transition? That is really complexity friendly, is based on these, uh, uh, you know, accepting these uh, competitive dynamics, uh, if you want, that we see happening now in the world. You now, there is this concept that we mutuated from Jack Murphy uh, when he speaks about strategic disconnection. And you know? also, how much of this transition and, and the work you are doing uh, deals with the this global top down level, and how much instead deals with uh, uh, changing driving value? and the changing posture of uh, the organization towards uh, things such as, you know, disruptions, risk, uh, and, uh, you know, participating in, in a more interconnected, but at the same time, more competitive economy and, and system?
0: Yeah, I think that the the, the, the question that you ask is, is fundamental, and it's actually sort of uh, hits the, the target uh, in the bullseye in terms of, the, you know, how we at R3.0 think of ourselves and, and the, the questions that we grapple with. So, I think in, in order to answer your question in a way that people can really wrap their head around, I think there are sort of two components of your question. One is sort of what are these uh, thresholds and, and sort of what's the conceptual uh, thinking behind them? And then the, the, the real core of your question is you know, who, who is it or what, what process is it that we um, determine what these thresholds are? And, you know, then how do we implement um, respect for those thresholds uh, in, in the real world, in organizations? And, and you know, is that something that, that is in, uh, imposed from above or is it something that, that emerges from below? Um, so, so that's sort of the structure of how I'll answer your question. Uh, from the, the the thresholds and allocations perspective, um, the idea of sustainability thresholds is actually um, uh, sort of a, a long-standing notion that goes all the way back to seventeen thirteen. Uh, the first sort of instance of of the notion of sustainability in the literature was from uh, uh, von Karlowitz um, in. Uh, was a German, German mining uh, minister. And essentially he noted that, you know, the mining sector was, was uh, relying on cutting down huge swaths of forests in order to coke the, um, the materials that were mined. So, you, you know, you had to, 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 to um, uh, fire the, what was mined in order to make it, it usable, uh, iron and such. Uh, and, and they were noticing that, you know, there's going to be no forest left. And so it's it's really at the, the point at which we as a culture realized that we were using resources unsustainably, that the whole notion of sustainability entered our consciousness. So, you know, sustainability is only a concept that, that's relevant when we start to enter an unsustainable sphere. So, you know, the, the notion of thresholds um, has, has long been in our consciousness, but it's not been particularly um, broadly accepted. I'd say the next uh, important sort of milestone there is the 1972 Limits to Growth uh, report that came out from the Club of Rome. And Dana Meadows uh, was a lead author of that with her husband, Dennis Meadows, uh, coming out of the work of, of MIT and the Complexity Science and Systems Dynamics. Uh, that Jay Forrester had established there. Uh, and what they noted is they just, you know, they modeled what, how the world functions and they recognized that our economic models, uh, our, our economic system would, would soon use up all of the resources that, that uh, you know, humans rely on uh, and, and that we can access in, in any kind of economic way. Uh, and that that would lead to um, a, a kind of collapse, if you will. They called it overshoot and collapse. And they, they noted that you know resources have what they called carrying capacity. So there's a, a capacity at which the resources can can handle a, a human population that relies on them or even uh, other species of, of populations that rely on them. And you know if that if those species, uh, overuse those resources, then that 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 system collapses. So that ties into your notion, uh, Simone, of 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 collapse. Um, if we if we fast forward, I think that the, the next next uh, key sort of um, milestone was was a couple of years later in 1974 when Barbara Ward uh, with the UN uh, uh, talked about the the notion of inner and outer boundaries. So outer boundaries would be ecological thresholds or, you know, the amount of uh, uh, natural resources that, that humans rely on. But there, there's also an inner limit. There's um, uh, essentially a boundary of, of social resources that we need to continually generate. We, we humans need to create human or anthropogenic resources on, on an ongoing basis. We have to continually regenerate these resources uh, in order to, to support our well-being. So folks may recognize that notion of inner and outer limits uh, in the the sort of um, visualization of that that came about in 2012 with Kate um, Rayworth talking about the donut, uh, her work built on the the earlier work of the Stockholm Resilience Center and its planetary boundaries that focus specifically on the, the ecological ceilings. Both of those threads of, of work were prefigured by the work of one of our colleagues, Mark McElroy, who basically said, well if these thresholds exist in the real world, how do you, um, h- how do you apply them at an organizational level, at a company level or at a municipal level, if you will? And that's where the question of allocations comes in. Um, that's a concept that was really established. Earlier on, by Mathis Wackernagel and Bill Reese from the ecological footprint, they basically worked with the concept of carrying capacity and said, you know, how would you apply that to to the land that's needed to support uh, a a population? Um, So, what what Mark McElroy did is he just applied that concept across the board that, that there are carrying capacities to all the capitals, so to speak, or the, the, the vital resources that, that we rely on. So not just ecological resources, but also social resources. So this is the conceptual grounding of, of our work um, uh, at R3.0, is that uh, you know these thresholds exist in the real world. And so we humans, if, if we're going to survive and, and thrive, we need to work Within uh, uh, or respecting those those thresholds, so so that's sort of the conceptual foundation, if you will, um, in terms of the question of you know who is it that sets those thresholds. Um, you know, the the first thing to say there is is that you know there are thresholds in the real world whereby you know a, a system will hit a tipping point and it will collapse. Um, that's fairly well established. Anybody who drinks wine and uh, appreciates the, the the alcoholic content of wine, they're relying on a, on a population collapse uh, of the, the um, you know the, 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 the bacteria eating the yeast uh, that that creates the fermentation for alcohol. so so you know, collapse is not a, a bad thing altogether, <laughs> at least for people who enjoy uh, fermented beverages. Um, so, so uh, you know, I I I I think that uh, collapses or or thresholds that 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 uh, mark tipping points uh, exist in the real world. But how do we humans understand that? You know, basically we have to to, to look at the evidence and say, well, where do we think that threshold uh, exists? And so, for example, I mentioned earlier the Stockholm Resilience Center and their notion of planetary boundaries. What they did is they looked at the evidence from the physical sciences, from climate change science, from biodiversity science, and they basically said, well, we can have a pretty clear understanding of where that tipping point threshold is, and let's set the planetary boundary short of that. Let's basically say the threshold is is out here at the ecological ceiling in terms of Kate Raworth's language let's let's set our planetary boundary to give ourselves some some leeway or some buffer, uh, if you will. Um, so actually the planetary boundaries aren't uh, aren't thresholds themselves. The planetary boundaries are, are a human uh, sort of a, a, an intelligent um, agreement that that we actually set our boundary well before the actual tipping point threshold. So this is all by way of saying that, you know these thresholds are are our human understanding of what the boundaries of a a wise system or a safe and just uh, operating space to use the language of of Stockholm resilience center and, and Kate Rayworth so this gets at your question simone is is sort of who's who's responsible for for making those determinations and you know We, we at R3.0 have set up um, what we call a a global thresholds and allocations council that would pull together, you know, scientists from around the world to give their input on that, um, that mirrors some work that's happening with the global uh, um, commons alliance that's uh, following a fairly similar path. But really, that's that that. Knowledge base can be established globally, but the implementation of it uh, really happens at an organizational level or um, even at a bioregional level. So to sort of give an example of, of how we are actually pursuing this from the bottom up perspective, um, uh, R3.0 is, is a, a convener. Uh, of a a bioregional collaborative here in the Connecticut River Valley uh, in in the United States where I live, we've you know launched this collaborative uh, in a specific bioregion. and a, and a bioregion is an area that's defined by its its ecological boundaries, like watersheds and also its its cultural, um, uh, heritage and, and cultural expression that aligns with those uh, uh, biological, um, uh, excuse me, with those those uh, physical and ecological attributes. So we've actually launched a project where we would uh, identify these carrying capacity thresholds on a bioregional basis, and then engage using some of the the the, the work of Eleanor Ostrom and. Her her work on governing a commons and in particular uh, her eight core design principles, using those principles to engage with the the inhabitants of of this bioregion to decide well, what are your priorities? So the the punchline here, Simone um, and Stina, would be that we believe that those threshold determinations can be made. At multiple different scales and, and really at the scale of uh, significance or the scale of, of relevance for where they're being implemented. So, so I guess we we believe that there could be top down, but we, we certainly wouldn't wouldn't say that top down would would uh, would trump, uh, if you will, um, more bottom up grassroots approaches.
2: Right. Of course, so we were uh, ethically sharing ideas with Sina in the background, and uh, maybe here I'm coming up with another reflection where also Ralph can, can chime in, you know, if I understand well. Uh, so so the point that raised, this conversation raised in my point of view is a bit related also with a leading topic of our research, that is the idea of uh, um, organizational entanglement, and also the idea that... Uh, Uh, You know, our current model uh, of organizing um, sees the organization as completely disconnected from the community and the landscape. Uh, You know, this idea of a specialized society where basically organizations are all about intangibles and in the meantime, the tangible side of the economy is pretty much, you know, left as a consequence of our consumption patterns and so on on the other hand uh, if we think about entangling organization in the landscape in the community it makes uh, more sense uh, probably to some extent to uh, really connect an organization to the impacts it's having on the on its uh, reference um, context you know, communities and landscapes but my, my question would be more into what happens when we try to embrace this idea of sustainability but we try to bring with us also the idea of the specialized uh, ultra specialized globalized society you know where basically everything is traded everything is tradable and then we end up with uh, things such as you know trading uh, carbon for example you no know? that is a good example of how you try to connect these two levels and you know? so you establish the uh, threshold and then uh, suddenly, you know, trades, trading becomes uh, the way for, you know, organizations to uh, bypass those thresholds, you know. So, so the point here is it seems like there is a bit of a friction you know, between this idea of, uh, you know, we put the thresholds and then we financialize everything so that it's subject to trade and we can continue with our idea of a specialized society, globalized, where organizations are not really connected with their context. And so the question maybe for you is uh, also in terms of finance, you know, what is the role of finance? What is the role of uh, trade, which is an expression of global interconnectivity, you know, versus this clear expression that I feel when you you were talking, Bill, of... uh, the need to re-entangle our organizing in our bio-region, for example, no? The need to see that uh, our approach to organizing as something more, uh, I would say, local. Uh, so how does it? Uh, how does
1: this dynamic work? Let me pick up uh, uh, that first part of your, your question, and then you're also more specifically asking about things like net zero or the role of finance in this, um, which Bill can actually pick up uh, later on. What I first want to do is just to let us together realize that the sort of disentanglement that you were describing is actually what also happened in the sustainability field. You know, when sustainability started um, with uh, the Brundtland Report in the uh, in 1987, and of course it started earlier, but that was the first real document around sustainable development. There was this this uh, this very. Great quote that you know we are we are uh, responsible uh, in our doing um, in taking into account also um, that future generations have the same chances that we have in our generation um, and technically speaking um, that is really about intergenerational equity which is one of the major preconditions of sustainability and what happened uh, since the Brundtland report came out is exactly that what what you were describing as. You know, sort of disconnectedness of um, um, of the sustainability field with the real world. Because what happened? We abused a paradigm that was around people, planet, and prosperity, and by that mainly around humans, into people, planet, and profit uh, to make it fit better to corporations. We totally neglected the idea of intergenerational equity. Um, ask any organization today, what are you doing on intergenerational equity? You look into questioning eyes, they have no idea what you're even talking about. And still, they have a sustainability strategy and they have a sustainability report and so on and so on. And why is that? It is, it is because we actually schmoozed ourselves into a what I often call a comic version of sustainability, um, which is called ESG, Environmental Social governance um that's what it stands for and the order uh, also says okay environment discussions came first then discussions about social and then finally discussions about um corporate governance um, that and that was really done because the financial world wanted something simpler i can still remember from my gri time that um when we are, when we were talking um, about I think it was the second generation of GRI guidelines that had around about seventy to eighty indicators, and we were talking to uh, people from the financial sector. They were saying, "Okay, so um, I'm dealing with uh, two different industries. Each industry has about a hundred organizations that I have on my watch list. So you want me to look at two hundred companies times seventy indicators? Are you crazy? Give me one indicator." Well, give me one sustainability indicator or give me two, but, you know, no way I'm ever going to capture 70 or 80 indicators times 200 companies every year. Um, and that is how, how ESG got born. And at the same time, sustainability started to get killed um, because what I described, the intergenerational equity a bit of it, the um a prosperity bit of it totally got uh, got uh, skipped from the agenda and that's what we have right now we and and we and also in measurement we don't have sustainability reports we have esg progress reports we don't have sustainability benchmarks we have benchmarks of those um who say who are best in class um of those who um who just became a little bit less bad in what they did so what we, what we, when we talk about sustainability today, we need to just capture that we're talking about a very reduced idea of sustainability called ESG, and that that doesn't really uh, connect to sustainability at all. Um, and that's also a huge part of uh, our work at uh, R3.0, actually captured through the idea of thresholds and allocations, and therefore it is such an important part of our work, but I think I think it what i what I wanted to say is that I showed that there is a parallel that that the sort of disentangled world also is a disentangled sustainability world um and that uh, we're actually not dealing with sustainability um we're dealing with less degeneration in many parts of the world and not about you know the dividing line of sustainability would where you cross from less degeneration to actually regeneration. And we're doing very little in that part. And the majority, I would say 95% uh, of everybody um, calling himself a sustainability expert is an ESG progress expert, um, and sometimes not even that. So, so that, that is sort of a starting point. And Bill, I think you could say a little bit more about the idea around net zero, about the role of finance uh, and sustainable finance.
0: Thanks, Ralph. And I, I think I'll also sort of tie in this notion of organizational entanglement, um, building on, on the sort of entanglement or disentanglement that you've been talking about. But I think, you know, uh, Simone, when you ask about sort of carbon trading, um, I think there's two layers to look at there. One layer is the carbon itself and, and how one accounts for that. And the next layer is this assumption that if you put a price on something, that that will help manage it. I think both of those are are complex and uh, problematic in the way that they're being dealt with. So I'll I'll deal with them sort of one at a time. The net zero idea or the idea that that what we want to come to is um, net zero uh, carbon emissions so that we're essentially creating the kind of dynamic balance that the natural world uh, has achieved uh, throughout the Holocene, which is the sort of Goldilocks era that human civilization developed during, was this period of uh, global temperature stability, where, where we kind of magically achieved this a uh, uh, zone of comfort uh where where um uh, human societies and and other species could could thrive uh so we're way out of whack with that and we're getting more and more out of whack with that obviously from the primarily from the uh emissions of of, of greenhouse gases uh, from fossil fuels so we need to get back into that dynamic balance that the natural world says and so doing that we need to get to uh our, our carbon emissions and our carbon sequestration balancing each other out? So that's the concept of net zero. And the problem with net zero is that, um, twofold, it assumes that that you can sort of count, uh, count and account for all of that carbon in a disentangled way um, uh, that that sort of sorts out the inherent entanglement between companies. Um, that's a complex uh, endeavor in itself. It's it's possible to do that, but it's very difficult to do, particularly with the the, the conflicted interests that we have. Um, and and I could just you know point very quickly to uh, you know Shell's recent uh, net zero announcement that you know everybody was trumpeting it about when it first came out uh, a month or so ago, and then as soon as people started peeking under the hood. They recognized that that Shell wasn't actually calling for reducing its carbon emissions. It was just calling for uh, you know waving a magic wand and creating carbon sinks sometime in the future by using you know several uh, uh, Earth's worth of land uh, to plant trees to 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 suck up that carbon. so so that's just an example of of that side on the on the, the 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 financial side of things i'd say that the achilles heel there is the assumption that 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 um the resources that are being monetized or the, the you know by putting a price on something all of a sudden that resource becomes fungible or tradable or transferable if you will and and the 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 the, the core problem with that is that Ah, uh, resources. Um, you know, you may be able to trade resources, but you can't trade the carrying capacities of those resources or the the thresholds uh, of the resource um, uh, stocks themselves. Uh, you know, we can we can we can trade when we're dealing with the flows of resources, but we can't trade in terms of the stocks that, that we there's a there's a non-fungible zone that we just need to respect. And anybody who, who balances a, a checkbook, you know, knows that uh, you need to um, you need to live off of your uh, uh, income uh, that you can't, uh, uh, you know, uh, dig into your principal uh, if you want to uh, uh, keep a, a balanced checkbook. So, in other words, you can't go below below your zero balance. Those are a couple of the the problems that that I see in the realm of of uh, of, of carbon trading.
4: Thanks. Uh, let me see if I can come back from the disentanglement thesis. And and we're talking a lot on this system level and the system thresholds and allocations and so on. So I'm curious about the small pieces in the system. And of course, you are uh, really careful when you're talking about context of sustainability. so, And I know that we also mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, the fractal economy. So I'd love to hear how this ties together. So if we imagine that we have many small pieces making uh, the whole, maybe of different sizes, but in a way, if one force becomes too disproportionate, the whole system can be put into disequilibrium. So how should we think about these smaller parts uh, of the system and the different dynamics that are taking place. And I guess coming back to those in multiple contexts also that you mentioned between organization, no one is operating in a, in a void. Uh, so there are many relationships taking place both with the landscape and with different organizations. Uh, so I don't know if there's a clear cut question, but maybe if you can expand more on what you mean when you For instance, talk about a fractal economy and how that can help us understand where regeneration starts and how your framework is conducive to that.
1: Yeah. And yeah, Ralph is here. I'm I'm just going to, again, take a first step at that and and Bill can chime in. Um, I think one of the things um, that has really been essential in our thinking right from the start is that notion of multiple levels. Um, in which economies uh, function um, and we established that in various pieces of our work where we are calling these different areas um, nano so the personal level where where things happen the micro level which is normally an organizational level um, and meso level or meso level which depending on where you come from can has different, uh, can have different sorts of um, um, boundaries. So there is a there's an industry uh, on an industry specific level. There is a habitat from a from a geo uh, level, and there is maybe um, from a financial sector percef- uh, perspective, the idea of a portfolio. All of these are uh, conglomerates of different micro level um, organizations uh, led by nano level personnel, of course. And then there's the, the macro level, which is really the economic, ecological, social systems level. And uh, just recently in our work, we actually added a supra level where all of these things come together um, actually to, um, to define you know, well-being through the creation of system value. Um, so, so we think through these different levels in all parts of our work. And then, in our uh, value cycles blueprint that you're also citing in the um, uh, uh, in your white paper, we um, actually referred or you re- refer to our work um, in the in the value cycles blueprint where we are where we wanted to bring together the, those two components of questions. one was what is of value really in a regenerative and distributive economy. And uh, what sort of economic system design would actually be needed? And that was more of an answer um, towards that sort of newly created buzz around the idea of a circular economy as sort of the end goal, which we doubted just simply from our earlier sustainability perspectives Uh, and knowing that on these different levels, that uh, these multiple levels, an economic system design is not just always circular. So um, we, we know that certain parts are always linear. We know that some parts are circular. Some plots, uh, bringing the timeline into that perspective, are, are cyclical. And we also know um, that there are spiral aspects to that. So an economic system design that is only focusing on the design of a circular economy is that on arrival from our perspective. It needs to capture all the different levels um, of development as well. And that is why we came up with the idea of of, of a fractal economy um, that combines all of those aspects um, in the best possible way, as as actually nature does. So um, from that perspective, um, our work is actually really um, looking to combine those different levels also in the design um, um, of an economy, and then of course the idea around thresholds, and then especially also allocations, is actually a crucial one in uh, in making the right allocation decisions. Um, so we have this idea of there's always a micro macro link um, in the design um, of an economic system that needs to be taken care of, um, and that is also actually what since the since the 2000s when uh, sustainability context was, was actually designed uh, at GRI and was first implemented in the second version of the GRI guidelines and is carried through until today, um, really got its, 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 its hold that it needs to um, acknowledge the limits and demands, or now called thresholds and allocations, uh, in actually managing um, such a fractal economic system design and and the economic system then
0: as well. Two quick things on on top of that, Ralph, Um, uh, you know, so just just building on the idea that you established that the Global Reporting Initiative uh, Sustainability Context uh, Principle established the idea of the micro macro link between organization level impacts and systems level outcomes, that that's sort of what defines sustainability. Um, and and also, you know, your notion that that that's what brings about the need to allocate responsibility for meeting those thresholds. Um, you know, the, the notion of allocation. What 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 I always like to say is that we are always allocating resources. Um, you know, every time that that we buy something, every time that a company. Um, uh, purchases land to uh, to mine on, for example. It's allocating resources. So allocation is always happening. It's whether it's being done consciously and in a, a way that takes justice, uh, fairness, and proportionality into, into account. What it does, though, is that allows us to, to um, scale down to the level of uh, uh, micro enterprises, for example. So, you know, with an allocation system, um, Stina, y- you could allocate resources to a very small organization, or even, you know, to an individual level. We could certainly, um, you know, allocate, and and there are, are apps that do this. You know, what's an individual's allocation of the carbon budget, if you will. Um, the, the question really becomes, you know, how do you do that in a fair way where, you know, I'm not over allocated resources such that somebody else gets under allocated those resources. Um, I think that also happens between different um, scales and also different parts of an economy, uh, different resources, if you will. So, so I guess two things that I'll end by saying is, one, uh, the, the notion of system value uh, is predicated on the idea that we're creating financial value right now. So we capitalize financial value in our economic system by decapitalizing the, 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 the natural and social capitals that we rely on. So so in other words, we're, we're draining value from the system in order to concentrate value in finance, and that's just insane. You know, we really need to be focusing on creating value at a systems level and distributed throughout that system in a fair and just way. Um, and I, I think I'll actually end there. I was going to say one more thing about multi-level selection, but I think that 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 get, uh, maybe goes too far down a rabbit hole. Or I'll see if we can. Uh, address that uh, in, a, in a future question.
4: I think we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. But thank you very much because I was going to ask about the individual level, but you, you, you came ahead of, of the question. So I'm going to pass over to Simone for his follow-up.
2: In this conversation we are having, there's a lot that resonates with some topics that we have been also touching upon with uh, some of the guests uh, on this podcast. You know? And, and I, I was thinking mainly two topics, but one conversation we had with uh, Joe Norman, for example, uh, that was around uh, this idea of subsidiarity, you know, that uh, he's making a point around that recently. So the idea that uh, we should be dealing with uh, needs uh, and pros and key processes uh, at the smallest uh, level, let's say not the smallest uh, context possible. No? so you can think about, uh, for example, what is the layer where you deal with uh, food production or energy or education or welfare, for example, these economies of essentials that we often talk about. And if we look at fractals, essentially, we started to think in terms of, for example, autarky and uh, strategic disconnection and uh, self produce your own key elements of the economy. Maybe if I can share a reflection, we're talking about organizations. And when it comes to organizations, these uh, will project uh, a whole lot uh, new. Uh, challenges into the organizational sphere that deals with the local. So normally at the moment, at the local level, we don't really do much organizing. Uh, you know, maybe we we'll do some administrative organizing, but uh, just uh, keeping the, the roads clean and, uh, you know, the aqueduct uh, functioning maybe. But it seems like we should be looking into a lo- whole lot more of the economy at that scale. That's the organizational challenge. But there is also quite a political topic you know because um and this is maybe a good start for the closing part of this conversation but uh, what do i mean with the political aspects it seems that we are looking a lot into some kind of pre-modern or even modern maybe ways of uh, managing and organizing things uh, that has been uh, completely uh, or, you know completely transformed and uh, or destroyed by these postmodern economic systems that we have. This is completely disentangled. So my concern is uh, there needs to be some political disconnection from the the situation we're living in now and uh, having really a sustainable economy and organizing. Uh, and it seems that it inks uh, a lot towards you know traditional ways more than globalized postmodern ways that, as expressed, for example, things such as the SDGs. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think I'll take first stab at, at this one. Um, and uh, this points to uh, a, a conscious decision that we made at R3.0 in 2019. Uh, and that's when we had uh, several of the people that you've mentioned at the beginning uh, at our conference. So. Um, Nora Bateson, is, as as uh, um, you mentioned, I think actually that might have been in our our uh, pre conversation, or or maybe you mentioned it at the outset that that you've had a recent conversation with, with uh, with Nora about transcontextuality, uh, but in particular um, a, a session with Kate Rayworth and Joe Brewer in particular, where Joe laid out the work that uh, he was doing at the time around um, bioregionalism, and essentially. Recognizing that uh, this ties into our earlier conversation, that that sort of the top-down approach of of solving uh, issues was was you know proving to be um, uh, uh, unsuccessful, uh, and even maybe you know part of the problem you might say, uh, and, and a lot of that is I think due to the political power dynamics um, that we have come to uh, believe in, in the, the modern world or the postmodern world, uh, essentially the belief that, that we can achieve progress, uh, through our, our faith in, in modernism. And, uh, that, you know, may or may not be, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the evidence is suggesting that, um, our pursuit of progress is, is actually what's, what's killing us, if you will, if, if you, um, sort of believe the empirical evidence, um, and, uh, uh, I've been introduced to the work of Bruno Latour recently, who, who questions whether modernism uh, actually exists or, or whether it's a, it's a myth. Um, but I, I won't go go down that particular um, rabbit hole. But but rather just focus on this question of bioregionalism that, that Joe Brewer um, really uh, you know he reasserted uh, after we had been introduced to that idea by John Fullerton in, in 2015. So. You know we'd been stewing on it for four years, uh, and we made a commitment after our 2019 conference to uh, extend the work that we had been doing, which was largely from a top-down um, perspective of trying to change things at the systems level, um, and and we we consciously moved into working at the bioregional level and organizing. Um, To fill that political vacuum that that you're talking about, uh, Simone, that that essentially there are a lot of political decisions that get made in, say, a government context, but there's less organizing peer-to-peer in a more movement-based approach, recognizing that we can't simply rely on the power structures that exist in a top-down way that are actively um, creating the, the, the circumstances of collapse. We have to work in an anti-fragile way that uh, increases resilience on, on a bioregional or a localized level. And so it's really tapping into that idea that, that you mentioned that Joe Norman talks about of subsidiarity, of you know, really you know, recognizing where in the system um, is an impact uh, uh, felt and you know, engage in that level of the system to 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 try and and, and make the system uh, healthy, make the system regenerative, uh, if you will. So so I think that you know we're we're still engaging with the power structures at the top uh, in a top down way, but we've really diversified our portfolio, if you will, of uh, of engagement to, to the more localized level, recognizing that you know it's it's how we work at an organizational or a habitat level that that ultimately um, aggregates up to to the big picture.
2: Right. I mean, I was reflecting to something that uh, Cameron Tonkinwise said a few months ago on a, on a podcast when he said, "You know, we are." we we are toward we are facing the paradox of uh wanting to manage ourselves uh out of uh, managerialism manage our way out of managerialism so <laughs> to some extent i believe it's a paradox that we cannot solve but from what you said and what you, the, the parallels you're doing with uh, the concept of subsidiarity we're talking about uh, it looks like uh, uh we need to some extent a political movement around uh, Organizing at the bio regional level, and uh, to some extent, uh, um, I would say, um, cut the energy. Let's say that flows from our communities into the global uh, post. Uh, you know the global trade systems. You know that uh, super specialized uh, trade systems that we seem to be uh, living comfortably within. So. Uh, I, I see the political challenge, you know, so I think uh, we need to start to see that and, and, and also start to embed this into uh, our um, way of organizing. So probably, uh, and then I will, you know, leave the floor to Stina for some further considerations, but my my learning here, my my the point that I bring home is that, uh, you know, uh, the work you are doing, it's also great to let people realize that uh, their um, compass of organizing should point much more into their local essential needs, as a way to uh, steer effectively a paradoxical system uh, that we now that we now seem to be living within, uh, uh, you know, taking responsibility to some extent. Uh, but you know, I, I will leave it to Stina to maybe uh, uh, elaborate on that.
4: I'm, I'm a bit afraid that I might uh, open Pandora's box. But when I when I was um, listening and I'm thinking about this. Um... Uh, the thresholds and the, like you were mentioning, are our intelligence points at this moment. But then we also know that uh, it's evolving. Science is evolving, and our understanding is evolving. Uh, so how do you, how would you deal with someone who, who is uh, very optimistic, uh, maybe of the role of technology in influencing the thresholds that uh, are currently, from our best understanding, you know, in place? And are of course dynamic as well. Um, if you have any quick reflection, and uh, I don't know if it's possible in such a big question, but uh, uh, would be uh, interesting to hear.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll take a quick stab at that one, Stina. Um, I, I I recently um, was in a, a Twitter exchange with Gregory Landway, uh, who you know certainly um, uh, I would imagine some of your podcast audience would be familiar with it, with his work. Um, Right now, he's the the chief um, uh, regeneration officer at Regen Network, uh, which is a blockchain uh, uh, solution uh, that's that's advancing regenerative agriculture. And we were basically, you know, uh, talking about carrying capacity and, you know, can you increase carrying capacity? And, uh, you know, one way to increase carrying capacity would be through a, a, a human technology intervention. So, you know, at the, at the, the field level scale, essentially Gregory was, was arguing that we can actually increase the carrying capacity of, say, a field by enhancing its soil carbon content. So, you know, sequestering more carbon in, in soil. Not only helps solve the climate crisis, but it also makes for healthier soil. Uh, So, you know, and and I actually think that that Twitter exchange um, sort of introduced uh, um, maybe more perception of division than than actually exists. Um, At at least upon reflection, I see that that um, you know I was arguing more at the macro level or the systems level where I think that our attempts to increase our carrying capacity or sort of increase the, the threshold, if you will, um, often introduces what uh, William Catton, uh, author of Overshoot, calls phantom carrying capacity. So it's, it's the illusion of carrying capacity, but you've actually just um, uh, expanded the ability of a system to, to, to function by, um, by overtaxing it. So I guess the the real question is, you know, does technology serve to to actually enhance the resilience and the health of a system, or is it, uh, is the, is, an, is a technological intervention simply kicking the can down the road with uh, uh you know what you might call the illusion of of progress uh, to quote one of our uh, um, uh, steering board members who's who's recently passed away. Ah, uh, Brendan LeBlanc said, "There's there's nothing more dangerous than than no progress, or the only thing more dangerous than no progress uh, is the illusion of of progress." So, so I think that's the a, a quick uh, a quick response. And I, Ralph, I don't know if you've got anything to to to, to add on to that.
1: I just simply don't believe that technology is the lifesaver. I think I'll, I'll I'll just leave it with that one sentence because it offers so many different directions, and it needs the humans to understand. And to manage this, and so, from that perspective, technology might be helpful in certain ways, and in other ways, it might not be so um i don't believe into technology to be so the focus point of uh, saving humanity right
2: i mean uh, I tend to really agree on that I know I've know i been we have been grappling with this technology question. Forever, but um, uh, we also refer sometimes to the work of Yu Kuhui, you know, that uh, speaks about uh, this uh, cosmo, local cosmotechnics, you no. Know? So the idea that we can develop a local way to, uh, I would say, subjugate technology to our cos- uh, cosmologies, so to our, so our ways of looking at our role into the universe. So I think uh, this is a brilliant uh, way of framing it, and uh, and and I really I really suggest everybody on, on this podcast to. Uh, dive deeper in who uh, is uh, work at these philosophers from Hong Kong, but coming back to to you for the closure, I, I think uh, I want to highlight a few points that I bring home from this conversation. That uh, um, y- y- you know, technology maybe won't save us, like, like Ralph said, but maybe organizing can, and uh, it's really about uh, looking at organizing through the lenses that you have been bringing up. So this idea of uh, fractals and multi-scale application and also mastering maybe finance in a way that uh, you, you speak about multi-capitalism, uh, this, uh, the idea to project a multiplicity of identities and possibilities and contexts into a otherwise very monolithic uh, technique that uh, humans have been creating, this idea of capital, like capitalism and finance. Uh, so I think it's really a call to, I bring home a really a call to you know uh, be attentive to thresholds and you know these global conversations but also on the other side uh, um, uh, equate this equation let's say with uh, uh, enough energy and enough attention and responsibility uh, towards uh, uh, organizing at every level, not just at the global one, but also at the local one, the bioregional regional one. So to step in, you know, in terms of uh, uh, almost as a political choice, uh, to become organizers uh, at these levels, so, and uh, I think this is a very good uh, uh, point to to end up uh, our conversation. So as a closing point, maybe if you want to add. Uh, uh, anything that uh, it's important on your side these days, so news or particular uh, initiatives that you want to refer our listeners to, and of course, uh, where uh, people can uh, connect with your ideas and your work uh, more specifically.
0: Sure, I'll, I'll I'll take a first crack at that um, on maybe the the idea side of things, and uh, leave it to Ralph to to maybe announce some of the ways that the folks can can touch base with us. Uh, on the idea side of things, uh, Simone, I think that that you know the idea of cosmolocalism uh, that that we came across through Michelle Bowens of the Peer to Peer Foundation is is something that we embrace, uh, and it also ties into the the notion I mentioned earlier of multi level selection, which is uh, from the field of evolutionary biology, and it basically says that you know natural selection doesn't just happen uh, at the species or or you know. Ah, uh, individual level that that actually selection can happen at the group level. And so, you know uh, uh, groupings of of individuals can tap into uh, behaviors that are predisposed towards uh, uh, being selected by evolution to um, uh, to 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 be successful. So we certainly I- embrace that approach. Um, and that's that's you know work that we're increasingly integrating into our our writings. Um, uh, but, but maybe that's a good bridge over to Ralph to to share some of the ways that folks can connect with us here at r 3 oh. um, So I'll, I'll just give my thanks to, to to the two of you, Simone and Stina for for hosting us.
1: Yeah, great, thank you, Bill. Um, I think um, I uh, introduced our organization R3.0, oh, which is actually a not-for-profit organization producing global public goods um, that uh, are available for everybody. You can download them from our website. Um, you don't even have to leave behind an email address. Uh, so we're not uh, harvesting any data from those that uh, that uh, download our work. Um, and R3.0 is a rather small organization on purpose because we're sort of creating those rings of uh, supporters around us. We have an education partner network of about 100 organizations already um, that uh, are absorbing the know-how of R3.0 um, and uh, introducing that into, or implementing that into their own value propositions to their networks and their clients, and by that we wanting to create a, a snowball effect from inside to outside, to the other, uh, to the rest of the world, but also a feedback process um, with our advocation partners to continuously uh, work on improving that work ecosystem that we have. Um, so that's that's an that's an open invitation. We also have an, an academic alliance, uh, and we're also thinking about adding two more rings around our our all planet. Um, one around um, the investment or financial sector or, or investor sector, and then um, at a later stage, when our know how is even better known, uh, also a government network. Um, so. that's that's going to happen in the future. Um, Right now, um, one one of the most important things that your listeners may also wonder, um, how are we going to implement those thresholds and allocations? And we talked about that um, already a little bit around the Global Thresholds and Allocations Council and network idea. But we're also doing a very practical project right now with the United Nations Research Institute for Social Development, a project that we call Thresholds of Transformation where uh, we are actually piloting uh, with around about two dozen organizations from the for-profit sector, but also from the social and solidarity economy sector, um, a set of indicators that are thresholds and allocations based. Uh, Just simply to also break through that idea uh, that the non-activity of other standard setters uh, doesn't have to do with the fact that this cannot be done, or it's too complex or too complicated. Um, so we're we're really wanting to um, to prove that that it is possible, uh, and there will be final results of that uh, project coming out by the end of the year, actually through Unraised. And then last but not least, like every year, we're having a um, a yearly conference. The 2021 conference will happen in September 7th and 8th of September. Um, the website just was just opened, and uh, we announced it in our newsletter. So that is also sort of a yearly check-in point into the news developments around science and behavior, finance and growth or anti-growth or degrowth or regrowth, whatever you want to call it, Um, um, uh, the the discussion around values and around uh, fractal economic design, around education and around governance. So that um, that is a very, um, uh, for us, it is sort of a culmination point on a yearly basis of all the work that we're doing and a good chance for everybody um, who wants to catch up um, to take part in that conference. So uh, thanks, uh, Simona and Stina for having us. Um, over to you for final words. Thank you, thank you both.
2: I think uh, this is uh, sounds like a start of a conversation more than uh, more than a closure. Uh, and I'm sure uh, I'm happy that our listeners uh, are now more uh, aware of the work you are doing, and maybe they can really contribute you know, to this important conversation. So thanks very much uh, about uh, about this. Stina, do you want to add something more?
4: No, thank you. It's been a great conversation and. Uh... Looking forward to sharing it with the, with the listeners.
2: So, thanks uh, everybody, and to our listeners, we catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdescentoolkit.com. For our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Valtemobilia Leo Sound for the ad-hoc music.